This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 142 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss James Baldwin's 1974 novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. So with a lot of the political uh, unrest going on in our country right now, one of the things James and I have talked about wanting to do more of is listening and learning more about, you know, black American struggles and one of the ways we wanted to do that was through the podcast, and we realized that a good way to do it might be to cover more books uh, and films uh, that were written by black authors and directed by uh, black filmmakers, and we found this one to be sort of a nice coming together of both. It's also a newer project, so we thought it might be something that um, people would be interested in hearing about because um, it just came out a few years ago. So yeah, we decided to do this Bill Street uh, adaptation. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's really important right now. Uh, just, you know, we're, we're going to use our platform to sort of r- bring attention to these projects and that sort of thing. In no way do we feel like we are sort of a voice that you should be listening to in terms of uh, perspective on this. But I think in, ter- in terms of growing ourselves, it's a good idea to, you know, get sucked into a story like this and, and see how someone else lives. You know, this is a story that, that neither of us, li- this, this is a story that neither of us uh, could ever live. It's, it's from the perspective of a black woman. So it's very much we're white men and we don't want to say like our, our opinions on this are correct or anything like this. It's, it's really more about us, us learning and, and growing yeah. as people. And, and, you know, in an effort to uh, try to raise awareness on this stuff as well, because I feel like a lot of black filmmakers and, and, and writers can be underrepresented in, in the communities. Right. And we honestly want more to cover. So please, Hollywood, uh, adapt more. Um, we're, we're definitely keeping our eyes on some some that we know are coming out. But yeah, I just want to reiterate kind of what you were talking about there in that we are not a voice that has any authority um, really talking about these things. Um, what we do here, though, is we cover adaptations and we talk about sort of the craft. And so we can we can highlight that as much as we can, and we can go in, and we can stumble around, and we can learn things, um, but ultimately there is going to be some, some sort of clumsiness, I think, in the way that we're going to discuss this stuff. And I want to sort of put that out there at the beginning, and with the, with the, with the understanding that if you're not interested in hearing two white guys stumble around and talk about race and, and trying to learn... Um, then I totally understand that, and I think you know, check out that, that that's fine. And, and in fact, I would I would I would ask you to because I don't want anyone to feel like they need to sit here and listen to us um, as we sort of clumsily um, try and go through this book and go through this film and learn. Um, that's something that is sort of a personal growth thing that we're interested in, and we hopefully our listeners um, 
might also feel that that pull and like that desire. And I think this is a great book for this. I think um, it's very topical for this moment, even though it was written in 1974. I was I was amazed at how topical it feels. And I, I'm sure the movie will feel the same way. Yeah, when we were when we were thinking we, we wanted to approach a project like this, we were sort of looking at ones that I think a lot of people know. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Barry Jenkins from Moonlight. I felt that movie really, really moved me and I felt it gave me good perspective. And it just, you know, helped me grow as a person, I would even say. And so I knew Barry Jenkins was a filmmaker I wanted to, to keep an eye on. And when Beale Street came out, I missed it. Uh, and knowing that it was, in, it was based on a book, I knew we would hopefully eventually have the opportunity to cover it on the podcast. And so sort of when the topic came up, I, I, I brought up if Beale Street could talk, it's something I hadn't seen and filmmaker that I really love. And, and I knew it got great acclaim and a lot of great actors that I'm interested in and in seeing their performances on. Yeah. And to that end, like I also hadn't seen it. I also um, I'm a little embarrassed, but I want to freely admit I did not know who James Baldwin was. Um, I don't think it's a name I'd heard before, or at least it didn't stick in my memory if it was. Um, and after looking into him, I am kind of embarrassed because he's a big deal. And so on one hand, like I'm a little embarrassed, but like on the other hand, this is exactly why I'm doing this. You know what I mean, like this is why I want to do this project because I'm learning about a really important voice. And I'm and I'm going to be learning about a filmmaker right now who I haven't seen any of his films yet. Um, you know, I haven't seen Moonlight, so I, I'm excited to get into into his stuff. This has the added benefit of I I didn't know the story really going in. I knew sort of the fact that there was like a romance element to it. Um, not knowing the story and having read it, it is like you said extremely topical. And I mean, it's a book that you like you said is written in the 70s and was was adapted in 2018 and then we see how just how relevant it is right now in this moment um and it was honestly surprising because i i was expecting more of a romance novel but it, it ended up being much more about uh, in my my perspective of it racial injustice and like the what it's what it what obstacles people of color can can have in their way and overcome Absolutely. And what I was finding in my research is that James Baldwin um, wrote about love a lot. And love was sort of a central theme in a lot of his books. I think there were, it seemed like there were a lot of people who didn't know if that was necessarily the way, but that was that was sort of the, the way that he felt like racial divides were going to be healed in this country was that I, I saw a quote of him saying how there, there needs to be love sort of on both sides. Like, and, and there was an interesting thing where he was saying that white people needed to learn to love themselves in a way that didn't require the subjugation of another, but just to sort of, um, they learn to love themselves and learn to love um, the black community, then that love could sort of unify. And later in his career, he started writing these books, and this is one of them, one of the key examples, where... Um, black love became central and sort of the so was was centered in the book, right? Like this this is a, this is a book all about black love, about um, romantic love, and then also about familial love. Um, and by putting that front and center, it seems like he really is trying to create that empathy that I actually find to be really powerful. And I think for me personally, one of the ways that I've grown a lot when it comes to thinking about racial issues is through empathy, through art and through um, 
learning about experiences and being able to put myself in the shoes of people that I otherwise wouldn't. And this book, it does a great job at that and, and showing the humanity of people. And uh, that's something that I think is valuable and I definitely connected with. And it seems like that's one of the things that James Baldwin wanted to do throughout his career. I mean, yeah, I like what you said about art sort of giving people the perspectives, because as we've said multiple times throughout this podcast, you, you know, you're able to live a life that you wouldn't have otherwise lived. And I think, you know, if you don't have friends or family or, you know, someone close to you that's going through these sorts of things, you can be blind to it. And I think, um, you know, using storytelling as a way to, you know, connect with someone or empathize with somebody's situation uh, is totally valid. I think that that's that, I, that's one of the biggest things that I that I take away from all storytelling really is just the fact that every everyone's a person everyone in the human race ha you should have empathy for because you know you don't know that that story and you can probably empathize with what they're going through if you actually knew what was going on so yeah i just like the idea of like f familial love everyone has familial love love romance everyone has romance um these are universal things and and like i think you know if white america reads a story like this and gains perspective in that way um, you know, I think that's a great thing. Just in case you hear anything on my track, by the way, there's a, there is a thunderstorm going on right now. So forgive me. I'll try to pull it out as much as possible, but it might still be in there somewhere. I also want to talk a little bit about the idea of art as providing sort of this, this path of empathy. And I, you know, I think that that is absolutely one of the great things that art has the power to do. Uh, for me growing up, one of the things I've come to realize is that because I grew up in, and we, we both did, in Central Florida. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I know, sort of looking back at that time period for me, I felt like I was a lot more open-minded and progressive and not ignorant, I guess, <laughs> um, than I actually was. Like, like at the time, I felt like I was, I was. And I know one of the ways in which that took form was that I was someone who embraced sort of being into heavy metal music and being into rock music. And this was at a time um, in which what music you listen to, uh, especially in, in the terms of like school, um, became a very key part of your identity. And so I identified with this genre of music and it became a part of my identity, and I know that I actively disliked the um, genre of rap music for a long time growing up, and I never thought of it in terms of race. I always thought of it in terms of, that's a t kind of music I don't enjoy. Um, but at the same time, like looking back, so much of it was caught up in identity, that there was a racial element there that I was unwilling to engage with. And um, I think one of the things I've been learning more about is the way that racism is a part of culture and is a part of systems, right? And uh, this book absolutely deals with that. It comes at a time in my life where I am even more open to this idea than I've ever been. Like I am primed and ready to learn about all the ways in which racism has sort of snuck into our system and snuck into our culture or has always been there and has been hiding, at least for people like me, in ways in which I, I, I didn't identify it. Um, so I guess I'm just trying to say that 
I think this book is particularly powerful for me in this moment with everything going on and and is doing the exact thing I hoped it would do, which is further my uh, education on, on all of this stuff. I mean, I like what you said going to music specifically because I feel like that, like I understand what you're saying. I, I can remember, you know, like being very invested in like rock music and things like that. Um, but at the same time would have friends who were really into rap and eventually I got into rap because of my friends. And like, you know, I think that is a great way to sort of embrace in general what 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 typically is seen as black culture. And but what's what's something that I'm realizing more recently is that black artists and black people in general will see white people embracing black culture and black art and, you know, whether it's movies or music or all these things, um, but then still, you know, turning a blind eye to police brutality, to all of these things. And so it's like embracing black culture while not embracing black people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never really made that distinction before of, of them. You know, you could you could be enjoying the things that they're creating and actively not actively not supporting as well you know what i mean in in sort of a in sort of a societal way and so like that that's definitely something that i've been thinking about recently is like you know as much as you love anything that anything that a black artist has done is how much you should love black people and just this idea of sort of not cherry picking specific things if you know what i mean like sort of um because i feel like that's what what can tend to happen in, in our society and it's it's kind of gross honestly and you know yeah. it's just it's stuff like that that i'm thinking more actively about um in terms of like you know you know trying to break down racial divides i guess yeah you know and I, and, I, and i don't think the music comparison is necessarily the cleanest um i, I know there's it's kind of messy and there is a lot of overlap and there's you know there's there's uh, musicians like rage against the machine which were definitely, you know, rock and metal, um, but they also had mixed with rap um, and who was absolutely engaging with these sort of societal topics, right? Like, and I think there was a big moment on Twitter where some people uh, looked really foolish because they came out and and were criticizing, um, you know, I think it was the lead singer of of, uh, Rage Against the Machine for being political and like, oh, you're being political these days. I'm never longer going to follow your music. And whether or not that was like a real person saying that or or some sort of satire, I don't know. But um, I I mean, I see this happening all the time and um, it kind of shows to me how just ignorant people can be and how even I could have been in the past and how I could not realize the what is actually being said in this music and engaging with it in the way that I should have been. And, and I'm going to try and do that more, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. So I think I want to get into talking about James Baldwin, um, the person, um, with the caveat of this, there was so much, like I was looking into him and like, this is a really interesting guy, really important figure. And, um, could easily have do a whole episode just talking about him. Um, so, you know, ultimately, we're not going to do a whole episode. We're going to condense it down. So, um, you know, forgive me if I if I leave out a bunch of stuff that that um, that you think is really interesting. If you do know a lot about him, um, I I'm going to throw out a lot of titles for different books he wrote, different essays he wrote. I have a ton of quotes in my notes that I thought were really interesting. I don't know how many of them I'm going to, get to read in the episode. So anyway, I, this is somebody who I encourage you to go look into more after you listen to this episode, um, and we just kind of give you a taste of it. 
All right, so James Arthur Baldwin was born in 1924 and died in 1987. Uh, He was an American novelist, playwright, essayist, poet, and activist. His essays, as collected in Notes of a Native Son, explore intricacies of racial, sexual, and class distinctions in Western society, most notably in regard to the mid-20th century United States. Baldwin's novels, short stories, and plays fictionalize fundamental personal questions and dilemmas amid complex social and psychological pressures. Themes of masculinity, sexuality, race, and class intertwine to create intricate narratives that run parallel with some of, major, some of the major political movements towards social change in mid-20th century America, such as the Civil Rights Movement and the Gay Liberation Movement. As such, Baldwin's protagonists are often, but not exclusively, African-American, while gay and bisexual men also frequently feature as protagonists in his literature. These characters often face internal and external obstacles in their search for social and self-acceptance. So this touches on some of the stuff that actually made him kind of controversial, unfortunately. So he was not only a gay man, but he was also someone who was outspokenly anti-religious. And both of these things together, as you can imagine, in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s, made him a bit controversial. Baldwin became sort of this uh, civil rights figure right alongside uh, Martin Luther King, right alongside Malcolm X. Um, he was was actually friends with these. He, he met he met people like like them and also uh, Medgar Evers. He wrote extensively later on about the assassination of all three of those men and how he was asked to go around to the South in the 60s. And he sort of did a bunch of speeches and and. Um, he went to different universities and different places to talk to to talk to people and how that was a scary time, you know, and there's assassinations going on. It was right in the middle of all this um, unrest in the country, yet it was something he did anyway. And one of the things I saw when I was doing research was videos of him giving speeches. There was one called the pin drop speech, which I'll, I'll recommend I watched. Um, and I think it's called that maybe because how quiet it was as he was talking, like, you know, you could hear a pin drop kind of thing. Um, he, he just sort of outlines a lot of the problems with, uh, structural racism in America in this like eight minute speech. And it was really powerful. So, you know, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. Um, but I definitely look, recommend looking into some of these talks he would go give. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I had no idea that, that he was, uh, civil rights movement and and you know that important to that movement. I saw in my research that he actually is considered the leading literary voice of the civil rights movement. So specifically literary, right? Isn't that crazy? Just to go to, goes to show how much how much uh, we still have to learn. The fact that like the leading writer, right, of the right, civil right, rights, yeah, yeah. That, that I didn't know about him, and yeah, it's it's like I said, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, but he also um, was really uh, important figure in the emerging gay rights movement in the 70s. Um, and I mean, he's a really fascinating guy. I, I was reading about how he moved to France for a while because he wanted to find a, an identity for himself artistically that wasn't necessarily all about being a black writer. Um, but then also to sort of from the outside gain perspective on his experiences in America and gain perspective on the situation in America. Um, and then I know that he moved back to France at the end of his life um, for a while. Um, and, and it's it's fascinating because he is sort of considered like this great 
um, writer who talked a lot about, you know, uh, black identity politics uh, in our country. Yet that was also something that it felt like he he wanted to not just be that. Like he really wanted to be more than that, too, um, which I'm not trying to. You know what I mean? Like that, that's something that he said. Um, and it's fascinating because I can get that, too, as much as you're writing about something like as a writer, you also want to just be a writer sometimes. And I think he, he struggled with that a little bit, too. Or at least that's something that he sought, like he wanted to engage with on a personal level. So touching more on the sort of anti-religious positions that he held, um, I was looking at it in his early life, he was rela- raised religious. He was raised um, in sort of a Baptist family. Um, and he eventually became sort of disillusioned by, by religion. And um, one of the things he said that I thought was fascinating was that he felt that religion sort of gave an excuse to not have to deal with the problem of racism for some people in the black community. And he didn't like that. Like he he felt like too many people were sort of pining for the freedom and joy of the afterlife. And it sort of gave them an excuse to just sort of suffer in their day to day lives. And I think it's fascinating because I, I think you can see that reflected in this book in particular um, with uh, Fani's family and their how they sort of use religion to to sort of mask all the evils around them and sort of remain kind of disconnected from it. Right. And, and you know, being someone who was raised religious as well, um, something that I responded to that I was that I was noticing in his writing is just the idea of how it's like very much about status in some ways and how that can really muddy a lot of that. Um, and that's something that I pushed back against when I was growing up and being realized because it just, it, it didn't feel like people were necessarily engaged in the right part of it uh, that, that they spoke to, you know, they, they spoke as if they were, and then would very clearly like, like my example would be um, Fawny's mother uh, and the way that like she's almost in a battle of sort of like engaging with the Holy Spirit or singing hymns or whatever and she's with with another woman and the way that like it's about how they're dressed and how it can uh, you know she she like turns to the whole congregation before she sits down and how that's sort of um, a status thing almost mm. like like showing the clothes that she's wearing yeah making a big show of like I'm here now I'm going to sit that kind of thing yeah well, uh, one of the many quotes I wrote down here that I think is, is applicable in this moment, he once wrote, quote, if the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we got rid of him. Um, yeah. yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, I think it's also, if you are a religious person, I, I think tr- he's not attacking you for that, but I think he is trying to say that um, we should be using religion in a way that that is um, productive and is is uh, making people more loving and not less loving. And I think that is super applicable today where you can see so many people who are otherwise claiming to be loving religious people, yet a lot often that can be a sign of someone who's going to say, like, if you're online, you'll see somebody like, claiming that and then you're like well i'm about to hear some of the most racist shit i've seen today is going to be in the next line and sure enough that the too frequently that happens i'm not saying it always happens but yeah and not to mention like our president 
going and tear gassing protesters yeah, in order to, to hold up a Bible. Like stand with the Bible <laughs> yeah. and, and can't he can't even name his favorite verse or anything like that. I've seen videos of people asking him yeah. and he he won't clearly so a book he's like, never read. You know, clearly yeah. exactly. Um, so, you know, and, and I, you, since you mentioned that there's another quote I want to read that I think is particularly, uh, pointed right now. It is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, the danger of ignorance and power is something he's talking about here. And it is something that I, I can't think of anything more appropriate than, than that in this moment where we're in the country yeah yeah i mean even you know pertaining to police brutality and and a lot of that stuff as well the sort of inherent like uh racism that's just there now and within the police police force that we've seen and has been there and has a history of being there because we're, we're seeing that in this book in the 70s exactly just how i'm like wow this could be stuff i could be reading about today and it would be it could be literally no different and I, it would completely exactly. be plausible that it was happening today. And that's, I mean, think about that. You know, the civil rights movement was in the 60s and people, I think people wanted to comfort themselves and say like racism is over and it's, you know, it's done with. And then, you know, I don't think that black people ever felt that, you know, I think that was a way for white, white Americans or people in general just to, to make themselves feel better and say like, oh no, like it's all, it's all over. Everything's everything's equal now and it's just so clearly not the case mm. when you look at the state of things today and you know it's been 40 years right 40 years since this book was written yeah so i want to talk a little bit more about if bill street could talk specifically um in the context of everything else that um james baldwin wrote and his life uh being you know involved in activism um and i found i was reading uh different things and i found an article uh written in the atlantic and it was called How James Baldwin's Writing About Love Evolved. And it was written by Dagmawi Wubshet. And um, I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. I think that was a great article um, discussing it. But I'm going to go ahead and read a paragraph from that that I thought was, that was uh, particularly uh, pertinent to what we're talking about. So, quote, If Beale Street Could Talk received mixed reviews on publication, some praised it for its delicate mix of romance and protest fiction, while others criticize the authenticity of the narrator's voice. But what's clear in retrospect is how Baldwin articulates his vision of love from within black life, as the novel centers on the emotional bonds holding two African-American families together. By contrast, the author had spent the previous decade instead writing and thinking about love as a collective American experience, one whose power came from the fact, fact that it cut across racial lines. So I just wanted to sort of give sort of the context to how this book sits and the rest of his oeuvre, right? And how he is doing something a little bit different here where he was really talking about black love and less talking about this sort of interracial and, and coming together of different communities that he had talked about in other books. Mm -hmm. I also think it's notable that he wrote from, this is the first book where he had a uh, female narrator, narrator um, and it came it came pretty far into his career and and I think maybe that's what what is being touched on there when it says some question the authenticity of the voice um I I don't know particularly what's being said but I think it could have something to do with like he's writing from the point of view of a black woman and he's obviously not a black woman um so um maybe there were some who sort of questioned that that authenticity because he is writing about not only a black woman but a black woman who is pregnant right and that you know 
again, we have no say in the matter. Like, you know, we have no perspective on it really. But for me, it felt, it felt pretty authentic. You know, like I felt engaged with the character. She felt real. Um, You know, there, there's definitely some clear, like patriarchal stuff in, in society still um, that as a black woman, she was going through in addition to being black, you know, like dealing with even, even the men in her lives and things like that. um, Still clearly um, sort of like that, that, hierarchy of of gender is still is still i think poignant uh i like the the sort of uh how the narrative weaves back and forth from from the past into the present and sort of reflects what's going on currently yeah and i i think you could look at this and say that he probably more closely identifies with the experience of fawny uh who is described in a, as I think I got a hint of him maybe being bisexual, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and this is this is the the uh, the character who is in prison um, and who uh, is sort of suffering at the hands of the system and uh, is being discussed a lot. But it is fascinating that he decided to write this point of view instead uh, from Tish Tish's point of view, right? As as the person on the other side of the glass. And there was a particular line early in the book that I wanted to quote, and that was. I hope that nobody ever has to look at anybody they love through glass. And I thought it was really powerful when I read, I read that part because he, the, the brilliance of this book and the power of this book is to taking you and putting you in her position. And, um, it's written in a way it is first person, but there's a lot of use of second person too, where she is directly addressing the reader and saying, if you could see, if you were here, if you, you know, you, if when, when this happens to you, this is what you'll, this is what you'll see. And if you were on this bus, you would understand. And like, I don't know, there was a lot of that kind of second person stuff that felt like it was speaking directly to me, the reader, um, that was really effective. And so I, I guess I could see the strategy and, and crafting the book in which, uh, that he's, he was using. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I didn't even really think of of it like that. But yeah, the, the sort of um, it's almost like a tale being told in hindsight, right? Yeah. And in, 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 in um, certain ways, that is interesting how it it is this first person, but also somewhat it felt somewhat omniscient at times. It felt like we were being told things that Tish couldn't have known about. Um, every now and then it would say something like um that they would later tell me like when when she was talking about her mother like she she would couch like right. i got this information because she later told me about it but it was so specific and in depth um it felt almost like it, i don't know the pov was really interesting in this book to me as a writer because it felt almost omniscient at times yet it was definitely first person uh which was mm-hmm. fascinating just the way he but he did you feel that. like it was also like recounting did you feel like that was a way that maybe it was a story she was recounting because she was like oh because i got these details later i'm now telling them when i'm recounting the story yeah. or did you feel like it was like sort of an omniscient thing yeah i mean i guess i guess probably more the former it was like i've learned i've thought about this all so much and i've talked to all these people so much that i've i'm able to piece all of this together and craft a narrative out of the things i know um so it was just on that like it didn't quite cross over into the area of truly there's no way she could have known this and instead was more like she had done a ton of research talked to all these people and gotten their innermost thoughts even if at the time they weren't sharing them so that now i'm coming from a place of full knowledge about everything that happened and i'm going to tell it tell it to you Right. Yeah. I mean, really, really fascinating way to tell a story for sure. 
So I think we're at a point where it's time to get into the book itself. Um, I hope that I've done even a little bit of justice to James Baldwin and his career. There's a lot more to, to learn about there. Um, and I may have things that I bring up as they become pertinent as we're t- talking about the book itself. But um, I'm going to read a short synopsis um, about the book, and then we'll get into it. And there may, we may start getting into some spoilers now um, as we as we discuss different situations that, that came up that were interesting to us. Yeah, we may get into more sort of beat for beat in our movie coverage, but uh, I'm ready to get into this if you are. Okay, yeah, I do also want to give a uh, sort of gentle trigger warning. Um, This book, the plot of this book does center around a rape that occurs, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. We're not going to go into detail, but, you know, if that's something that you don't want to hear about, uh, you know, just want to put it out there. So, yeah, I'm just going to read a one paragraph description of the whole plot, and then it'll free us up. We can kind of just talk about whatever we want. So the book follows a relationship between 19-year-old named Tish, whose given name is Clementine, and a 22-year-old sculptor named Fawny, whose given name is Alonzo. They become engaged, and subsequently become, uh, Tish becomes pregnant. Fawny is falsely accused of raping a woman and arrested and jailed before trial, and the failures of the criminal justice system keep, keeps Fawny incarcerated. The family finds a lawyer to help defend Fani, hoping to find evidence to free him before the baby is born. And that's the book. You know, the book is about the struggle to find evidence um, to to free Fani, all while, like you said, sort of intermixed with these flashbacks describing their romance um, and their lives before he was imprisoned. Yeah. I mean, so many angles to approach this from, but... uh... I mean, to start the idea of an artist, you know, someone someone picking up their passion, someone like Fawny going after their passion instead of, you know, maybe chasing money oh. uh, and what that life, what that yeah. life will entail and how the struggles that will come from that. And then leading into the idea of like, you know, a white artist versus a black artist and like the opportunities that are going to be presented and that sort of thing. And then going going forward from there we see sort of you know the success is they're starting to get some success and then just because the deck is stacked against them in terms of like society we see you know racial profiling happen and and um you know eventually leads to just out and out racism with a with a police officer and i mean it's 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 just like (laughs) it's so heartbreaking because it's it's uh there's no uh, there's a version of this story where we see them get the loft uh, and they, you know, they get to start their family together in this loft, but instead, you know, just corruption and, and just hate really tears this them apart from each other. Man, t- okay, so multiple things to talk about there. Um, first off, I, I think you're absolutely right, and he's talking about being a black artist, and that's one of the reasons why I said earlier that I thought um, James Baldwin really closely identifies with Fawny, and, and, and I think this is a clear example of you know, instead of being a writer, he's he's a sculptor, right? And right. he is chasing something that there's not a lot of money in. And um, I thought it was really fascinating when there was the whole thing where Fawny was asking Tish's father about wanting to get married to her. And um, one of the things that was described was how they had to sort of get past this this like latent desire to have her marry a Rockefeller and the safety that that would have provided. And it's Mm -hmm. talked about in a really interesting way because it's kind of joking, but also he's like, but really not that far from the truth. Like there was sort of a, 
an outstanding desire to to sort of be just like sort of lifted out of poverty um, through a really rich marriage. And you have to get over that and, and recognize that that's not happening because she's now marrying a, a poor artist. Right. And, and so that's giving up that sort of like pipe dream. Um, and I don't know. I just the way that that was described, I thought was really authentic and something that people still do what deal with today. Um, and even more so if you are in a position of poverty and you're in a, in a position where you don't have the privileges that, that white artists have. And then the second thing is you were talking about the version of events where they're able to get the, the loft and have this happy life. And like, they kind of do get that, but mm -hmm. it's at, it's after and in the midst of all this injustice. And I thought that was something that this, this book does really in a fascinating way is it's, it's in so many ways, a tragic book and it is frustrating and the injustice is, is everywhere and I kept wanting them to beat it and and then I kept realizing this isn't something you can just beat it is a it is right. it is a reality of their life and to give the reader that feeling of oh it was defeated it would be it would be like a way of giving them a way to feel better about it um like well yeah and it doesn't it's not realistic right it's not realistic to the the issue he's pointing yeah, it's at. not realistic if you just if you just out this one racist cop then everything's fine no it's not He's just a part of a larger system. And so I realized, okay, we're, it's, that's not going to happen as much as I might want, want it to. Um, yet, the balancing of that with the fact that still this book is all about love and is all about right. hope. And I think that that's what the baby, to me, represented was the hope of a better life and the hope of being able to live together and and love each other even amid, amidst all of this other shit that's going down. Um, right. I was impressed with the way that Baldwin was able to have both of those things remain true and present throughout the book. Right. And I mean, like, how much more powerful does it make a love story when when there is this through everything it still still holds strong? You know, the, I, you know and something else that I really enjoyed about this story is that my preconceived bias of, of going into this story was... Uh, she's going to get pregnant and her family is going to be upset about it. And I was really happy to see that her family specifically wasn't and they were supportive. And just the way that, um, you know, we've talked about like it's I think it's happiness through the struggle, happiness through all of this and the enduring spirit, you know, the enduring spirit of these people and this family and like the hardships they have to go through and how there still is the joy there um, while identifying, you know, all the racism and hardships and just all you know all the injustices yeah well and you're touching on the problems of shame and um judgment that tish talks about a lot and, and talks about like being on that bus and how she feels so isolated and how no one would have any sympathy for her if she said you know my my husband um is in prison for a rape and I'm pregnant and I'm 19, how she feels like there would be nothing but judgment and there would be nobody who is able to feel her isolation in that moment. And it was heartbreaking. And um, it was nice to see that her family didn't have that same judgment, yet there was still, it was still there and it was presented through Fonny's family, right? And exactly. their judgment. Yeah. And there was this big altercation that takes place um, where the two families 
are are they get together and and it's all couched in like a bring over some beers we're gonna have a conversation it's gonna be great and they share this news of oh she's pregnant and then you see Fawny's mother um curse tish and curse the child in her belly and um in in just a dramatic scene and then um ernestine uh tish's sister goes off and i just want to say that i just fucking loved her in that moment she goes hard Mm -hmm. on them like scorched earth just just you know you are not going to talk to her that way and um i don't know i just i thought that was a really really engaging and just dramatic scene that that i'm hoping uh is is just as powerful in the movie when we get to there as it was in the book the other thing to look at uh just in terms of you know society and the family dynamics and everything is fawny and fawny's mother and father yeah and like you know this what how they're not happy together clearly they're very different people um and sort of just they're they've stayed together for the kids seemingly or they're stayed together because of circumstances or religion whatever it is um and then ultimately like sort of where that leaves the family as we get further into the story you know like what ends up happening to Fawny's father and everything. Yeah, let's 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 outline who these characters are. So there is Sharon, who's Tish's mother, there's Joseph, who's Tish's father, and then uh the Hunt family, which is Fawny's family, you have Frank, uh is is Fawny's father, you have uh Fawny's mother, Mrs. Hunt, who is sort of the the religious paragon, and then you have his two sisters, Adrienne and Sheila, who are both much like his mother. Um, extremely religious and seemed to really sort of follow in her in her footsteps and um yeah their 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 family dynamic is fascinating because both of these family dynamics are so informed by society and and their positions in it and how the systems of oppression have changed family dynamics um I don't know. It's just all it's all fascinating how rich a tapestry he was able to weave and how interconnected everything clearly was to me when I when I looked at it. You it feels real as well, right? Like it's sort of it's it's you know this family, you know a family like this. There are th- great things about them, there are flaws, there's everything in between and I think uh that's you know it stood out to me as as realistic. Like all of it all of it felt very I bought into it. Yeah. Um and and I think, you know, I keep I keep wanting to jump to this moment, but specific because it is one of the more shocking moments. But what happens to to Fonny's father? Um, yeah, the end. Frank, of the- Frank, right? He's he's sort of shown uh, with Tish, and like in the first story we hear of him, he's you know he has the clothing store mm-hmm. of some kind, tailor shop, and he is he realizes that Tish has like a thing for Fonny. And even when they're very young, she like comes looking for him after their fight. They have like a scuffle and sort of disagreement. And then and then that leads to them being friends. But anyway, she she's worried about Fawny because she attacked him with a board that had nails in it. Yeah. She went to the father to, to check in because she couldn't she couldn't wait anymore to find out if he was OK. And I think from that moment, Frank knew what Tish and Fawny sort of he could feel like the, the what they meant to each other right away and like saw that Tish liked him. Um, and then throughout the story, you can see him as is so much more supportive of the relationship than the mother, than Miss Miss Hunt. And so that leading all the way to, you know, what the 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 fathers Joseph and and uh, Frank are willing to do, in order to you know get the money to to help the legal cause of Fawny, 
and then what ultimately that leads to for Frank's character in the end. Um, you can just see the through line there, and and you know I don't think there's a I don't think there's a, a father out there that wouldn't go this far for their for their kid. You know, it's it, when you're put between a rock and a hard place, you you got to figure something out. And and I think like that that's it just rings true for me still. Yeah, specifically what you're talking about, they they start to have to they start stealing. I think it's, it's talked about like they start feeling like there's no way for us to get this money together. So we're going to get involved in, uh, in selling stolen goods and how they, they try and keep the their families sort of um, separate from that. Yet they have to get involved. And, and that was one of the tragic things that it really highlighted was the way that the system is in a way creating criminal behavior to combat the very system that is oppressing them. Like they're, they're having to go outside the bounds because there is no path for them to, to raise the bail. And so now you're having characters who are doing things they wouldn't have otherwise done all coming back to the injustice of the false imprisonment of Fani. Right. Um, and so like the ripple effect is just, is huge. Right. Exactly. Someone who's innocent being accused of this, and then having to find the funds just to get a lawyer to do the things that the investigations and everything they need to do in order to get this done leads to actual criminal behavior because, it, it, you know, that's what it would take. Yeah. And I think it, yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because it is, it's a failure of the legal system. It's a failure of society. It's a failure. And it just goes to show just ab- how absolutely corrupt all of it is. And, and just the fact that money and 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 influence or whatever, uh, how it's all sort of smoke and mirrors. You know, if you have the money, if you have if you have the the sort of position of power or or influence, you can you can get out of anything. Or like in a, in another situation, you know, Fonny's Fonny's father is a lawyer. He's out of the situation almost immediately. Yeah. Clearly, because like they would have the means to to show that it was not that it was a false ac- accusation. So I want to talk about the character Daniel Carty, who shows up. Um, I think he he's really another interesting facet of all this, right? He's a he's an old friend of Fonny's, and we we learn about him in a flashback. And he tells the story of how he got arrested, and he I guess he's recently out of prison, and it went it went in into places that I wasn't expecting and um, wasn't something I'd seen before. It was really fascinating. So he talks about how. The police picked him up doing basically stop and frisk, um, sort of profiling, right? And they think that he stole a car that he didn't steal. And he doesn't even know how to drive. Yeah, he doesn't even know how to drive. He didn't steal this car, but they profile him and they and they pick him up, and he has a bag of weed on him, um, which is, you know, somewhere I live somewhere where it's legal now, and and I, I totally just the 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 fact that I've lived in a place where it's been legal for a while now to have weed, I think just further highlights the the fact that in my opinion all drug arrests and all people in prison right now for having possession of marijuana should be freed and how it should be legalized and and it's just all bullshit right. so another um, falls of the legal system yeah the reason i bring that up is when uh daniel is describing what happened to him he was convinced to plead guilty to robbing or to stealing this car because they told him it was going to be a lighter sentence than if he if he resi- if he um claimed he was not guilty um which was a lie and was a way in which they manipulated him into admitting to something he didn't do um and this happens all the time 
I know this is a big problem that's still ongoing today and how um, people get convinced because you often so much hear people of like, oh, well, he admitted they did it. He, you know, he pled guilty. So what are we talking about? People will falsely say that they did things just um, to 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 get out of, uh, you know, to get out of a, a more difficult sentence or a longer sentence. And, you or know, the, they, they take the gamble. They take the gamble, gamble right. potentially. Yeah. And, and the other thing is like under a certain amount of duress, yeah. people will admit to things as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Um, and all of that was heartbreaking too, because what came after it was where Daniel was like breaking down when he was talking to Fani about his experience in jail and like the things he saw and the things that he had to deal with. And, um, it was so sad to me and tragic to me in that moment too, because he was talking to Fani who we know is experiencing those things right now. It inf- it informs in sort of a retroactive way, like how yeah. we feel about what Fonny's been going through, and yeah. and that's why he sometimes acts the way he does when when Tish comes to visit. He's like on edge and just not himself and everything. Yeah, and and yeah, I I love that because he was he he almost seemed erratic in his behavior, and you could tell us because the stress of of being in prison and having to deal with all of this while being innocent, and then one of the things that's really heartbreaking too is how. Throughout the course of the novel, as we start to realize that the hope that is dangling there is going to start to be taken away, um, and the hope of being of being sort of freed and found and, and proven innocent, that hope goes away, and he resigns himself to it, and he is hardened by it, and he's changed by it. So mm. um, that that is um, one of the tragic things that plays out is that there is no hope and there is no um, light at the end of the tunnel from a systematic um, oppression point of view for this book. Yet, it is being played against um, the hope that the pregnancy provides, where we end the final line of the books talking about the crying infant and, and, and Fani is seen at his table sculpting. So eventually he does find a way back to the life he wants, um, so I, it felt to me like he was trying to say, like, if there's hope, it's hope through love and hope through, um, existing and, 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 and finding a way to exist even despite it all and, and to, and to have joy and to have happiness despite it all is itself a, a hope, even if there is no hope, um, within the system we're, we're, we're living in. Right. I mean, yeah, I think that encapsulates sort of what I got out of as well. Um, this idea that through through these struggles and everything, there there can be ways to sort of I don't know, not make it better, but but still live your life. And and you know, it doesn't make the atrocities any any less you know harsh or or easier to deal with or anything like that. But it does it does give you hope in a certain sense. And I, I think this book did a great job of like showing that a lot of this hope will exist no matter what but it there could be so much more of this you know of the goodness and the the art that people can provide and the love that people can show if if like i said before the the decks aren't so stacked against people because it's just it leads people to to you know to dark things and and doing things they don't want to um which also brings me back around to victoria rogers who is the Puerto Rican woman who um, was 
who accused Fani of raping her and then w- left and went to Puerto Rico. Yeah, and, and I think it's pretty clear she was raped, just not by him. She was raped, exactly. So, and I think that the, the lawyer brings up some valid things as well. It's like, you know, for the for a victim like this, a victim of a crime like this, it's so, it's so detrimental to like your mental health and everything that that you need to just be done with it and attempt to move on and sort of like bury some of this stuff or or at least like you you know like you you can understand someone who has been raped needing to have needing because because the idea that they're still out there i think is harder for a victim of that um and so it's just like all of it it's so it's so clearly you know we don't like this character because she's falsely accusing one of our main characters but at the same time she's been raped and it's in a, in a system where she, they might never find the person who actually raped her and so you're saying she doesn't of, want to admit to herself that maybe she was wrong like she wants it to be true that this was that this was the guy right. and that he's in prison now to the because extent it's that, that it for, feels better exactly and for her own for her own mental yeah. state she needs to think that he's been captured and you know is incarcerated and all of this stuff and it's just another failing of the justice system it's exactly really, it's it's tough that's i mean the 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 villain of this book is racism and the systematic injustice and i think you're you're touching on something powerful there and that she there is no justice here and what happened to her was terrible and you can't rely on a victim to be the arbiter of justice it needs to be the system itself and it and this that's outlining the reasons why another thing that the lawyer brought up that i liked was uh, or, or i think it was the lawyer was talking about how there was a lineup presented to her and there was only one dark-skinned person in the lineup and it was funny so she mm-hmm. she said you know she was raped by a, a black man and so she picked out the only black man in the lineup and how that on its su- surface should have been something that should have gotten the case thrown out because it, it was ridiculous to, to put it in that way of course she's going to pick him yeah, goddamn it's yeah. Because you get a lineup, it's like which one of these guys did it, and she's like, "I was raped by a black man." There's only one black guy in the lineup. Of course, she's gonna pick him, right. and that was what was pointed. And the out, lineup, so. of course, selected by the police or the authorities or whatever. Yeah. So it's like you know, crazy. So I wanna I wanna do another I wanna read another quote here that I had written down um, that I thought was particularly profound to me. We've talked in the past, I think when we were covering like altered carbon and stuff, we were talking about how I personally like to think of like our consciousnesses as being who we are and sort of independent from our bodies in a way. Like you can, you know, because in that book, it's all about lifting consciousnesses and putting them in different bodies. Um, And I still feel that way. You know, I still feel like that is a way to empathize is to realize that our consciousnesses are separate. But this was a quote particularly about how our consciousnesses are not separate from our bodies. And I actually, I found it really powerful too. So, quote, the first time you realize that a stranger has a body, the realization that he has a body makes him a stranger. You have a body too. You will live with this forever. It will spell out the language of your life. And I really like that, that last line, it will spell out the language of your life because it's so true. Like our lives will be tied to the bodies we have, you know, being born white versus being born black you know, being what society deems attractive or or being not attractive, Um, being whatever sex you were born into and whether or not you identify with it and have to struggle with the body you have. We're all of us born into bodies. And one of the key differences between all of us is we all have different bodies with different problems and different um, difficulties that we'll deal with throughout our lives because of those bodies. And I never want to try and erase that. And I think a key part of that is race, but also 
you know, so many other things about our identities are so tied to our bodies that um, I think that's something that that it should be highlighted and should never be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like, you, you know, somebody could be born with you, you could you could be the same race, sexual orientation and, um, you know, gender and and still just based on, you know, like you said, just based on attractiveness, just based on looks, you could be more privileged than the next person. Or yeah. able-bodiedness. And so, you know. Exactly. You know, that's and something so, that, that often gets overlooked. Yeah, like if you're if you're fully able-bodied or not. Right. And so it's like, it's almost like privilege is fully a spectrum there. Yeah. You know, like it's not, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's important to think about that. So another scene that I, I wanted to talk about was uh, when they go to the, f- to the market and Tish gets assaulted by this Italian boy. Um, and when Fani recognizes what's happening, he comes in and starts beating on this boy. And then um, the police show up and specifically this one cop who we know is, is a racist and how tense that was and how immediately he comes in and tries to arrest Fani. And, and say that Fonny was the one attacking somebody. And it takes Tish saying, no, 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 he was defending me. This this boy attacked me. And it takes this um, this awesome Italian, uh, the shopkeeper, who, who says, no, no, she's totally right. I 100% saw this go down. And they all have to sort of agree and, 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 call the, and, and call the, calm down the situation and tell the cop that he's wrong because he's trying to arrest Fonny. Um, I, I don't know. I just thought that was a powerful scene. It also was so um, timely for what's going on all the time right now and how basically the idea of like community policing versus versus someone coming in and immediately assuming that the black man was in the wrong. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, it's scary. I, I Like you said, it was a very tense scene. And then what's even t- to me, because there was someone there that spoke up, you know, that's the justice there was 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 done correctly. But the scariest part is that now the policeman holds a grudge, right? right? And so now he has a grudge and now he's, yeah. he's like, I think that night he's like staking out their apartment or whatever. Yeah. It's implied that, that that all has to play with what goes down later for sure. Exactly. And he doesn't even really need to like outline on the ways in which he, it does. It's just like, yeah, of course that had to, had a play. But she also points out like, what if, what would have happened if, um, you know, that woman hadn't been there to back me up. It fundamentally shows that in that moment, they could not turn to the police for help. And how if you have a police force that part of the society feels like they cannot turn to for safety and for justice, then we got to scrap it. Like We got to figure out a way to make it work for everybody. If it doesn't work for everybody, it works for no one. It's not even like they can't see them. They can't turn to them for justice or for safety or anything like that. It's that they actively feel like the opposite is true. Yeah. Not yeah, it's not that you just can't. It's that they will be harmed if they do. Right, they're being pursued and actively profiled by these by these people. So yeah. So I did want to ask you about Frank at the end, um, Fonny's father, father, who is sort of ca- caught up in grief over the the lack of hope, and being found out for doing the things that he had to do to try and come up with the bail money, and how he uh, at the end commits suicide. And how, right. to me, that's like the culmination of the tragedy of Fani's false imprisonment is not only the effect it's going to have on Fani, but his own father committing suicide over the actions he had to take to get him freed. 
Um, I mean, we already, we, we talked a little bit about how he was in an unhappy marriage and then mixed with the fact that like, you know, his reputation was ruined. He, he lost his job. The only way he could help his son was to get this money and support his family and steal, steal some stuff in order to get the extra money they needed for the, for the lawyer. And then, yeah, just every, he lost everything. Basically his son's incarcerated with no hope of, of being saved uh falsely you know he was falsely in prison and then losing his job which he uses to support his family especially in the 70s as well Well, and it it was it was caught up with his gender too like he i I thought it was interesting how a lot of it was couched in him saying like what kind of a man am i you know what what have i done and Mm -hmm. how he felt like his manliness he couldn't he couldn't fulfill the the sort of ideal he had for what it meant to be a man um I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess, like to me, that was all very messy. But it was, but it, but really fascinating. It was kind of an insight into, um, how his perspective on yeah life, his perspective kind of. on gender yeah. and and his role in society. Because right. Of it. Well, and it's like this, like you said, written in the seventies. Yeah. This idea that that you know he would no longer be able to support his family, which yeah. is in the society's view, like that was his role, and he could no longer fulfill that and, oh man it just reminds me of a powerful conversation he has with um joseph where that he says like how are we going to find this money and joseph says like we you know how do we, how do we ever find the money to do anything like we've never had money right. yet we've we've we found a way and in some ways it's like hopeful um and they do but in other ways it spells their do- their doom right like frank is ends up you know having to kill himself or not having to but he ends up killing himself over the fact that the things he had to do to to raise that bail money um i don't know it's like it's it's interesting how it can both be true and untrue that they'll that they find a way because they do but the cost is so staggering yeah that they pay personally for it all right, so we're going to be able to talk more about this story next week when we cover the film um, and, and get into even more of this stuff. And, and I'm really excited to get to it. I do want to leave, um, I think, this this book with a quote from that Atlantic article again that I thought really um, summed it up in a really interesting way. And we can, we can talk about it a little bit more, but um, I'm, I'm going to leave it with this, I think. So... Quote, Innocence, Baldwin argued, masks America's violent racial past and present record, enabling white Americans to shirk responsibility and to reproduce an idea of themselves and of the United States based on the Republic's noble ideals rather than on its ignoble history. Baldwin believed that no substantive racial progress and no fundamental transformation of the nation could be achieved so long as innocence remained the organizing feeling of American whiteness. This is why he championed love as a countervailing feeling. In fact, he believed it is the only remaining force powerful enough to free whiteness from its arrested state of innocence, concluding, if love will not swing wide the gates, no other power will or can. Um, which, yeah, I thought was powerful you know and and that's seems to be the message of this book and i agree and you know so much i see that white innocence that people who just 
nope, we didn't, you know, we didn't do anything wrong, or if we did, it's over now, and just, just waving your hands and, and, and claiming no responsibility, claiming never feeling a moment guilt or never feeling a moment um, of recognizing privilege and recognizing the way that society benefits you while oppressing others. And um, yeah, I love the idea that that love is the, the, the feeling that's powerful enough to to um, to change that. We have to hope that we see lasting change and with all the all the stuff that's going on now, but ultimately like our society hasn't been able to get over it to this point. So we have to assume that it'll it will be there for a long time still. Yeah. Um we just have to continue to stamp it out and and be aware of it and, you know, try to do what we can to support and and vote, you know, vote along with people who are willing to, you know, help in social systems, help in, in ways that can benefit communities that are that are you know being oppressed yeah. in these ways and and yeah it's like first step is to get people into office who are willing to listen and are willing to work and then once they're in office pressure them and hold them accountable and don't let don't let them sit back and say well it's all solved now because it's not it's it's systemic it is everywhere and it's gonna gonna take many years of difficult work i think to to try and change um, so yeah, I mean, I also say, you know, even if the, you know, the election, the upcoming election in November goes the way, um, we hope it will. And many people do, um, and, and Trump is, is booted out of office. It's like, yeah, then that's just the, the beginning of the next work that needs to happen as we continue to, to hold people accountable and, and hopefully have people who are willing to listen. Um, so yeah, n- n- no easy answers, I think, is is the takeaway from that. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about here at the end is that I, I hope that our podcast can be sort of what what is being discussed here, and that it's it's an attempt on our part to empathize, to learn, and to use our love of books and cinema um, and adaptations to guide us as we as we are trying to learn and grow. So. Hopefully it. Uh, hopefully it's in keeping with Baldwin's sort of vision. Yeah. Right, and and you know, to the people who listen, hopefully you know, raising awareness to these projects yeah. that are because the, you know this is a first for us. So uh, it's a black author and a black director. So you know, we I think it's important to highlight that that, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So. That's going to be it for this week. We'll be back next week with the film, um, which I'm really excited to get to now. Um, we hope we hope you enjoyed this. Um, if you did, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Um, it's a good way to help us get the word out for our podcast and continue to grow. Yeah, and connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And please join the Council of Inklings. We post polls about upcoming projects, you know, have uh, some of our listeners help us decide on that sort of thing as well as news and any sort of adaptation related material we find anything we're excited about and i did want to mention that our most recent bonus episode is out now on patreon it was for total recall the 2012 version of that story Um, we just published it and we have 25 that and 25 other (laughs) bonus episodes on there um, that you you can check out for as little as two dollars so if that's something you're interested in go to our patreon patreon.com slash ink to film And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this week. Until next time. Thanks for listening.